Good morning, church. Welcome. If you're watching online, welcome. We're so glad that you're watching uh, today. I know if you're watching online, you are watching from YouTube or from the website because Facebook has already blocked us. Um, so, yeah, we were blocked in the first three minutes. So if any of your friends are texting you asking if we're having church, tell them to go to our website. That's always the safest bet. And to be honest, it's better quality sound because Facebook, um, with all of their videos, it's not like an anti-religious thing, but with all of their videos, the quality is lessened because they have so much going through. So if you ever <clears throat> are at home and are watching on on the TV, just project it from our website, theexchangechurch.org forward slash live. Anyway, uh, I think we have an audience on the other side of that camera, so welcome. I'm so glad that you're watching in Jesus' name. All right, we are in a series uh, today called Truth Over Trend. I began uh, the series a couple of weeks ago, but I began this specific sermon last week. So this is a part two uh, of understanding the Bible. I'm excited about the stuff that we have uh, to share with you today. I want to read our text. I have so many pages up here. I'm, it's taking me a while. And of course, my hands are dry, so I can't turn the pages. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 through 17 says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we are talking about scripture, the power of scripture. Father, in Jesus name, I thank you for what you're doing in our church. Uh, in this season, not just today, but in this season, God, I ask that today in this sermon that you would just speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would inspire us, you would grow us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen, amen. Well, if you are watching on YouTube, I might as well take this opportunity uh, to say go ahead and subscribe to the channel. We have approximately 40, I, I, this number could be wrong, but somewhere around 50% of our viewers on YouTube are from people that aren't subscribed to our channel. Now the benefit of being subscribed to the channel is that you get notifications when we go live. Um, so if you'll subscribe to our channel, that will help us. It also helps the algorithm so more people sees the church. So anyway, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please do that. Go ahead and give us a subscribe and a thumbs up and a like and all, all that technical jazz affirmation okay it's more than just a feel-good thing it helps us get the word out does that make sense and none of you are on YouTube at the moment I know but we're communicating to the ones that are um, let me just go ahead and preface this sermon by saying if I faint it is probably not the spirit uh, it is the flannel because it is 72 degrees in this place and I thought it would be a good idea to wear this today apparently I wasn't the only one We've got Amber in flannel, my wife is in flannel, Pedro is in flannel, Jordan is in flannel. It must be flannel Sunday. Uh, but quite honestly, if I pass out, don't just say yes, Lord. <laughs> Get me some water. All right. When you walked in today, you got some handouts, and you may have gotten it last week. We provided this again just on the off chance that you weren't here last week and you wanted to go ahead and pick up the Bible study methods that we handed out. Please... Go ahead and put these away. 
we're not preaching on this. I don't want it to be a distraction to you. It's really great stuff. I wrote it, but it's not for this 30 minutes that I have with you. Uh, you can take this home with you, and it will help you uh, study the Bible. Also, you've got your small handout for notes, fill-in-the-blank notes. If anyone needs notes, right now our ushers, our worship host, are walking down the aisles uh, ready to give these to you, or pens if you need Notes or pens, raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, six, a few of us. Wow, our team did really good distributing this stuff today. Good job. So we'll get that to you. Keep your hand raised. We have some more up to the front over here. Worship post. We're looking for, again, the handouts and the pens. I went ahead in today's handout and filled in the blanks from last week. If you weren't here and, and you didn't catch the sermon, um, the sermon was way better than what you're going to read on the front of this handout because this is abbreviated. So I would really encourage you to watch last week's sermon <clears throat> on our website uh, and, and follow along. I've, I've provided some information. But we're going to pick up where we left off uh, because I had, I think, 17 points, and I got through four of them last week, right? Uh, so I'm doing a bit, a bit more teaching in this, because my goal is to really help you understand how to interpret the Word of God. I hope you understand the benefit of that. There could come a day where Facebook doesn't allow church services. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, you know, there could be a day where we don't have technology, to even text or email someone who's more spiritual than us to find out what something means, right? I, I'm not a doom and gloom kind of, kind of guy. I'm just saying it would benefit us to know how to read the Word of God. It would benefit you to have, I think the average home in America has seven Bibles. If you've only got four or five, you are behind the curve. Uh, the average home has seven Bibles. Now, they may not know where they're all at. And I, I guarantee you they don't read them all. Uh, I don't know what the stats are on Christians that read their Bible. Uh, but from the looks of social media comments, I would say quite a few. Uh, so my, my goal is to help us understand the Word, be able to interpret the Word, and be able to apply it, apply it to our life. So I've gone through four points already. Let me just jump right on in. Point number five, it's the bottom of your page. <clears throat> Someone asked me once if I interpret the Bible literally. Now, that's a, that's a tricky question because there are some things in Revelation. I don't know if you've ever read the last book of the Bible. Uh, it talks about a beast that comes up out of the sea. Uh, it talks about at, you know, hornets with like stingers that are the size of my leg, um, like massive things. And so I think people, they say, when you read the Bible, do you take it literally? I think they're asking me, do I believe that everything in, say, Revelation is going to happen word for word as it states? Now, my response is, of course I take the Bible literally. Don't you? That's the way the Bible's intended to be taken. 
And we have proof of that because every prophetic scripture of the past that has already been fulfilled was fulfilled literally. Not allegorically, not morally, not like, oh, I think I can see a picture of what God was talking about. Like every prophecy that has been fulfilled to the letter has been fulfilled literally. No, I think what they're really asking me is, do I believe that there are going to be hornets with stingers the size of my leg? I, I actually, I'm not going to answer that today because uh, it's not important what I think on that. But I want to teach you what it means to believe that the Bible is literal. Because literal interpretation doesn't mean that when you read Revelation that there has to be hornets with stingers the size of your leg. Okay? What is literal interpretation? The point is literal interpretation means to interpret the Bible the way it was written. Literal interpretation means to interpret the Bible the way it was written. Now when we sit down and we read scripture, we have to discern the fact that scripture has many different literary genres. All right? I know it feels like we're in class today. It feels like we're in school. Uh, but hey, this is free education for you today. All right? This is really going to help you interpret the Bible. Sometimes in scripture we see that the form is letters, right? The epistles are letters to other churches or to other people. Sometimes we see that it's historical narrative. Anyone read Genesis or Exodus lately and we see the historical narrative of this happened and then this happened and then this happened and, and this is unclean and this is unclean and this is unclean and unclean, 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 All right, Historical narrative. And sometimes we see uh, Proverbs, poetry, parables, the Gospels. All of these are considered different literary genres. So to interpret the Bible literally, if you want to do that correctly, that means that we have to interpret each genre appropriately. That means I treat poetry different than I treat historical narrative. You going with me? All right. Uh, I treat the epistles different than I treat prophecy, right? I don't just open the book and interpret everything the same way. There are different rules to help us understand each different genre. So I'll tell you what liter uh, literal interpretation doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we ever have the right to come to historical narrative and interpret it as moral symbolism. Can I explain that to you? In the 19th century, um, it's known as 19th century theological liberalism. All right? Not to be confused with political liberalism. We're not talking politics today. So just tell the political spirit to stay out, okay? Uh, theological liberalism is a term, it is a thing, it has its claws in the church, the global church, not just the American church. But in the 19th century, liberalism, uh, that came from the German Enlightenment. They were the masters of this, interpreting historical narrative as moral symbolism. Now, theological liberalism is, is an attempt to adapt theology to modern culture, where culture is the grounding structure, rather than creeds, church history, doctrine of the early church. Do you see what I mean? Can you kind of see the difference? Um, theological liberalism 
takes the context of the world in which we live and they interpret scripture through that context rather than understanding that truth is unchanging and like our founding fathers the first century church actually knew what they were doing we've not somehow evolved them and we haven't become more enlightened and now we can interpret scripture in a different way because had they known what we know they would think this too right that is theological liberalism i'll give you a few examples by the way it really started we can see this oh my goodness you can see this in uh the book of corinthians right how the the dysfunction i'm talking about them a lot because i'm teaching about the corinthian church on wednesdays but so they're on the forefront of my mind but man they were dysfunctional this was a dysfunctional ragamuffin crew and um we just we see even then they were trying to establish theology based on the culture around them and it was so dysfunctional the apostle paul told them in chapter 11 my favorite part probably the whole bible he's like it's actually better if you don't meet just stay home right (laughs) i mean it's just but even even then there was theological liberalism going on culture invading uh, the christendom of what what should be established but it officially became a thing in the 16 1700s with uh english enlightenment uh and then in the 1700s uh with i'm sorry 16 1700s with the european same thing european enlightenment and then it gained traction in the 1800s with german enlightenment and then america good old america they know how to keep some things alive in the 20th and 21st century we have kept alive theological liberalism and you can see it based on the creeds of churches all around town what they deem to be truth and what is outdated and what you know accommodations we can make um, that is theological liberalism now i'm just letting you know again i'm not talking about politics but you go to a theological conservative church our belief is that if god said it he actually meant it if it's in the word it's actually true okay that's the kind of church you go to um in the 19th century a few examples to help you understand how narrative was turned into moral symbolism when jesus turned water into wine at the marriage in canaan uh, theological liberalism in the 1800s primarily started saying that he didn't actually turn water into wine there was sediment on the bottom of the jars and when they poured water into the jars the sediment mixed with the water and it looked like wine but they had already drank so much that it tasted good to them so the conclusion is water is the best wine okay they're making a moral statement out of a narrative but the truth is they really were out of wine and jesus really turned water into the best wine all right not not no weak kool-aid right it was it was wine jesus literally and we're interpreting literally he literally turned the water into wine another example they would say in the 1800s when it talks about jesus feeding the 5,000, what really happened there wasn't a miracle involved what really happened was a boy came with his lunch his fish and loaves and Jesus saw his tender heart and he was willing to share. So he looked out in the crowd and there were more people who had brought their lunch that day, but not everyone. And people were hungry. So they convinced through the eloquent words of Jesus for those who had 
to share. And everyone was filled. Jesus fed the 5,000 because he convinced everyone on the hillside to share the lunch that they brought. Right? It's Jesus with his compassion and persuasion. That's how it happened. It was a miracle of ethics, is what they said. Teaching us to share. Now, that's a, that's a good lesson. Right? If you have lunch and somebody's hungry next to you, share. Are you, somebody, somebody's like, but what if it's Chick-fil-A? Even if it's Chick-fil-A, share. Don't say, I'm going to pray that God's going to multiply this Chick-fil-A. And if he does, you can have the second piece. Right? So ethically, yeah, we should share. But that's not what that scripture was trying to communicate. That scripture is communicating that the the God of the heavens and the universe came in earthly form and he, he is actually able to multiply and meet the needs of whoever he wants to meet the needs of. Like he literally fed 5,000 men plus women and children on a hillside. It was a real miracle. And then there was a real stretch that they would tell. I don't know how anyone ever fell, uh, fell for this one. They taught that he wore a very long robe and the back disciples were feeding food through the back. They had this unlimited supply of food off the cliff and so the disciples were feeding it through the rope and he would just pull it out and it just kept coming you know like a magician with the handkerchief it just keeps coming they really taught that now we laugh at that now at how, how ridiculous but it was a system that was being established in the 1800s to not take the word of god literally and when you have a historical narrative that tells you jesus did something he actually did it I know a man that believes he's a Christian, but doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the grave. He is a pre-Easter Christian. And, and I, we laugh and think, how is that even possible? But it started in the 1800s. That's one of the theological liberalist statements that they would make. They would say, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. Here's what happened. On the third day, the disciples finally saw Jesus for who he was. When it says in the Bible the disciples saw him, he wasn't raised from the grave. That's, that's, no one can raise from the grave. But three days later, the disciples finally saw what Jesus came for and who he really was. They had an aha moment. It was a miracle of, of, of understanding. You see how they're twisting scripture Jesus literally raised from the grave this is why you and I have power over the things that we have power over because he's already conquered it all this is you know reading scripture this way and you know I keep referencing the 1800s but the reality is if you're if you're not aware of other sects of religion sects of religion that interpret this way you're a bit sheltered and consider yourself blessed because you've not had a lot of interaction with false theology. But there are many churches today that will interpret scripture the very exact way that I just described to you of the 1800s. And this is what we call, you know, at best intellectually dishonest exegesis. Or if you were here last week, eisegesis. Reading what you want to read into scripture rather than reading scripture for what it is. So when we read biblical narrative, we need to understand that those things actually happened. Can I get an okay, pastor? Amen. 
I understand it's not moral symbolism. It's not God trying to teach us a lesson. Um, I, I spent some time making a 13-page guide um, for you that goes through all the biblical genres. of. Well, there are more than I discussed, but it's the primary ones. I gave you, uh, let me see. I haven't did a table of contents because I'm professional. Uh, I'm addressing historical narrative. I'm addressing poetry, how to interpret wisdom, literature, how to interpret the Gospels, how to interpret parables, how to interpret the epistles, how to interpret prophecy, and how to interpret, this is a big one, but it's not a genre, but I included it anyway because it, it's so much confusion around it, how to interpret biblical law. So all of the law that is in Scripture, I'm, I'm showing you how to do that. Um, and I give you some study tools. Um, you'll get this as you exit today for $14.95. You, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Now, it's free. Our, our worship host will hand it to you, not right now, um, because this is, this is written better than I'm speaking today, okay? And I don't want you to get distracted with it. But if you want one, find a worship post. Uh, this is a great resource. I, I think you'll find it very helpful. And if you have any questions, email me. I'll walk you through. I'll walk you through it. All right, so literal interpretation means to interpret the Bible the way it was written. And each genre is written a different way, okay? So that's what literal interpretation is. So when I read a prophetic book like Revelation, I'm not bound to the narrative laws of believing that there is a bumblebee with a stinger the size of my leg because prophecy books have different rules for interpretation. Does that make sense to you? So I can move on to the next. Our next point today that will help you in interpretation is books can have multiple genres. Books can have multiple genres. For example, Jonah. Anyone read the book of Jonah? It's about a man who didn't want to do what Jesus told him to do. And so a whale swallowed him up. Right? Uh, that, that is historical narrative. And it literally happened. There was literally a man... It was swallowed by a well. I know it makes no sense, but actually um, there was a man swallowed by a well several months back. It literally happened. For, and so for all the people who said, well, stomachs aren't big enough, that's impossible. You were wrong. <laughs> Turns out the Bible was right. Well, the book of Jonah is historical narrative, but there is an exception. There's a prayer in there. And the prayer that Jonah prays while in the belly of the well is written in poetry form. So you can see that there's narrative and there's poetry. Another example is uh, Revelations. The first three chapters of Revelation is like an epistle. It's a letter to seven churches. And then the first few verses of chapter 4 is historical narrative. And then about verse 3 or 4, you go from historical narrative into prophecy or visions, okay? And you, you can interpret all of those differently. I'm going to help you do that. Um, and then Job, of course, the book that is just so life-giving, so encouraging. Uh, Job is both poetry and historical narrative, okay? So there, there are multiple genres in each book. I hope this is making sense to you. Let me, let me move on. We're going to go a little bit deeper, okay? I'm going to go deeper with some interpretation rules for you. Uh, the next thing that you need to always know is Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
there's a method out there that people, you know, some scholars, many scholars actually, and some Bible readers are adopting. It's known as atomism, A-T-O-M, like an atom, the smallest, you know, particle, an atom, atomism. And they will take a portion of text and they'll dissect it and they'll, they'll study it and they'll read it. Um, but they don't take a look at any, any of the other scriptures. So they look at that one little atom as an independent part of scripture. And they'll say things like, um, you know, when Paul's talking about justification in Galatians, I don't care what Paul says about justification uh, in Ephesians or Romans. I'm just looking at Galatians, right? That's atomism. The fact is, anytime Paul talks about justification, we should look at that if we're studying justification, right? It seems common sense to me. I saw a YouTube speaker talking on the end times, and this person was studying the book of Revelation. Now, I love me some Revelation, but this person said, I'm only studying Revelation, and if it conflicts with Daniel or Zechariah, that." That doesn't matter. Everyone else is trying to look at all of these scriptures in the Bible about the end times. I'm just looking at Revelation because that makes the most sense, right, to her. But she's breaking a very fundamental rule. You have to use all of scripture to interpret scripture. Does this make sense? There is an immediate context of scripture and there is a wider context of scripture. And if we really believe that God doesn't lie, then we have to believe that he won't set one verse or one paragraph of Scripture at odds with another paragraph of Scripture, right? That it will be consistent. So if I'm reading multiple parts in the Bible about one topic, and they seem to say different things, um, and they're set in opposition of each other, then I can know that I'm the problem. My interpretation is the problem. Because God doesn't change. He's not confused, right? And he doesn't contradict himself, all right? If a person has a hard time understanding uh, some particular biblical text, I would encourage you to go to another biblical text that talks about the same thing and see if it's easier to understand because the principles will be the same, okay? That, that's an evalu that, that, is, that is worth your tithe today. All right. Find all the verses that talk about the thing you're curious about. Find the easiest one for you to understand. And they will all, most likely, there's going to be an exception. I'll talk about that in a minute. But they will all mean the same thing. Okay? Next point. Become passionately involved in the text. If you want to be a good Bible interpreter, be passionate. Wait. I did, didn't I? Good. Truth is objective. That is the next point. Truth is objective. Classically, we believed this to be true. The world did. Society did. We believed that truth was objective, right? We, I, I grew up, even... Even 40 years ago, 50 years ago, there was this notion that truth is objective. Like, if you touch a hot stove, you're going to get burned, right? Uh, don't cross the street without looking both ways. There were very, 
Things were very absolute in our society. It, as early as 40, 50 years ago. Right? Classically, we believed that truth is objective. And we would have no problems understanding that as a culture, as a society, or as a church. The problem is, uh, then came along modernism. Modernism said that our truth is determined by how we perceive it. All right? Well, if, if it hurt your feelings, then it was rude. But maybe it wasn't rude. Maybe objectively what's being said isn't rude. But if you feel like it's rude, then it must be rude. Do you know what I mean? You, do you see this in your own life? I can't give every example that you've encountered. But modernism says, hey, if you feel it, if you perceive it, it must be truth. Right? And that was kind of nice. You could kind of get your way on some things, like arguments. You could just always agree to disagree on everything, because if you felt it, that was fine. Preference, preference really ruled. But we're not in modernism anymore. We're now in post-modernism. Post-modernism tells us that truth is a matter of preference. So modernism is how we perceive it. Post-modernism is truth is a matter of what I prefer truth to be. Here's a good example. I'll give you a good example. You're, you're watching a baseball game, and a pitcher pitches the ball. This is, I'm giving you objective truth. The pitcher pitches the ball, and it crosses the plate, and the catcher catches it, and the umpire's standing behind and the catcher looks at the umpire and says, well, what is it, up?" And the ump says, it's a strike. All right, that's objective truth. It's a strike. The ump saw it. He called it. It's a strike. Now, modernism, the pitcher has the ball. He pitches the ball. Goes over the home plate. The catcher catches it. The ump is standing a, a little ways off, you know, not right behind the plate. The catcher says, well, what is it, ump? And the ump says, look like a ball to me. No, no, no. Look like a strike. And the catcher said, no, I think it was, a, it was a ball. I saw it as a ball. And the ump says, well, I saw it as a strike. I calls them as I sees them. All right? Modernist view. If I see it as a strike, it's got to be a strike. My perspective is the ultimate authority. Right? Postmodern, the pitcher has the ball. He pitches the ball, it goes over home plate, the catcher catches the ball, he turns to the ump and says, well, ump, what is it? And the ump says, I'll let you know, but right now it's nothing until I decide what it is. Right? So we move from objective truth to perception of truth, now to preference of truth. And if, if you can't see that shift in culture... You're living under a rock. That, that's nice in baseball and, and maybe nice in like what kind of meal to eat tonight or what book to read on your leisure time. But when we're talking about what's true, we have to stick to the fact that the truth is objective. In our postmodern world, the Bible is presented like it's an abstract painting. And the Bible is whatever you make it to be. Whatever you think you see in the Word is what the Word is. But I've got news for us all. There's only one meaning to Scripture. One. One. 
I know that's, that, that boggles our mind. There's one meaning to this thing. Now, there may be 10,000 different applications of the scripture based on the season you're in. There may be 10,000, 10 million different highlights of the story based on your social location, for those that were here last week. But when we talk about meaning, there's only one. There's only one. Truth is objective. All right, let me move on. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go quick over the last 200 points. The next one is read the Bible like any other book. In the Bible, a verb is a verb, a pronoun is a pronoun, a noun is a noun. Just read it. Just open the Bible, read it like any other book. And I know this seems, this seems elementary, uh, but some of us don't read the Bible because we don't read Greek or Hebrew. And so we think, what's the point? Let me just tell you, Greek and Hebrew may illuminate some of the concept. It may give some depth to the meaning of Scripture. But if you just read the Word for what you read in the Word, you're going to grow. Many of us try to lucky lucky jump it. You know what a lucky jump is? Lord, I need you. Judas went and hung himself. <laughs> Go thou and do likewise. You know, you know what a lucky jump is. You know what a lucky jump is, right? It's just like, now I'm not saying that God can't use that. But God can use anything he wants. But if that is your mode of interpreting scripture, if that is, if your Bible reading consists of lucky jumps, I feel like, I feel like we're being irresponsible consumers of the word, and we're doing a disservice to the Holy Spirit. Almost, you know, it's like, uh, it's insulting the Holy Ghost who wrote this thing. There, there is rich material in here for you, so just open it and just read it soberly like any other book. It really is that simple. All right, my next point. Become passionately involved in the text. Don't read it as a detached spectator. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes when he was called to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. What did he see? What did he smell? What did he feel? What was he thinking when he was walking for three days and didn't even know which mountain he was going to until he lifted up his eyes? What did he, what did he feel inside when God said, this is the mountain to go? Like, be an active spectator in the text that you're reading and and by the way be okay with wrestling with the text you know what i mean when i say wrestling with the text go go through the whole bible and if there's stuff that you don't like just underline it go through the whole bible anything you don't like underline it it's okay to wrestle with the text. it's okay to not like something you read in scripture all right just own that and underline it and, and then you'll go back through and you can look at all of those underlines and one of two things will be true. You'll find that you either misinterpreted the first time or number two, you really don't like it. But when you find something that God likes and you don't, you have a real springboard for sanctification because you've isolated those places where what you like and what 
Godlikes are two different things, and you know that you're the one that has to change. Become passionately involved in the text. When you are passionately involved in the text, you become the one under the microscope, not God. Rather than reading the word to, to check God out, to see if he's going to be faithful, to see if he's going to hold up to his end of the deal, get involved in the text so that the text will read you. My next point. Interpret the narrative by the didactic. Everyone say didactic. Didactic is not a difficult word. I, I could have used a different word. It's just that if you read... If you read other Bible stuff, you're going to come across this word. So I just want to teach you the lingo. Like we did exegesis and eisegesis. Um, interpret the literal or the, this might even be a better fill in the blank for you. Interpret the non-didactic by the didactic. Okay, so it could be in, interpret the poetry by the didactic. Interpret the narrative by the didactic. Interpret the prophecy by the didactic. What is didactic? By didactic, I mean the text that provides straightforward instructional material that is not, for the most part, dressed up in fancy, figurative, poetic, narrative language. All right? Um, the stuff that's not all flowery, there, there's a lot of stuff in Scripture that is instructional. It is very clear what the writer is intending for you in didactic portions. Right? The epistles, the letters to the churches, didactic. These are instructions. You, make sense? Didactic texts are the epistles, the legal codes, um, sermons, uh, like Sermon on the Mount, different sermons that you find in, in the text, those will be didactic. And they're generally clearer than non-didactic texts like poetry, prophecy, or historical narrative. So historical narrative will show you what happened. The didactic will tell you why. So if I'm reading in the narrative of the Gospels, I'm standing outside of Jerusalem and I see this man being arrested and then held on trial. And he's known as the Messiah. And then I see him convicted and I see him beaten. And I see him hanging on a tree and I see the spear go in his side. And I see people mourning and I, I see him sit there and the skies go dark. And I wait and I watch them take Jesus off the cross. If I'm just watching that from the narrative perspective of the Gospels, it's, it's actually, it, it's not automatically or instinctively true that I'm going to know what's really going on is a cosmic atonement. I find that out in Romans, the didactic portion of Scripture. Does that make sense? So the instructional uh, parts of scripture will tell you why and what's really going on in the narratives. So don't make a theology out of narratives because oftentimes what we see or we think through the narrative is not really true. I'll give you an example. If you read in Genesis, God is walking through the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? It would appear from the narrative that God didn't know where Adam was. But in the didactic portions of Scripture, in the clear instructional portions of Scripture, we know that God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. 
This is very clear. Therefore, in the narrative, it appears that he doesn't know where Adam is. So when I'm interpreting that, I have to look at the didactic and say, well, that can't be the case. Because if God is omniscient and uh, omnipresent over here, the didactic, he is here in Genesis. So the question he's asking Adam is not to find out where Adam is. It's for the benefit of Adam, not for God. Does this make sense? All right. Um, and then one final little tip on, in this way is if a subject is addressed in scripture in multiple genres, say it's in the poetic, say you find it in, in the narrative, say Job, there's something in Job uh, that doesn't quite make sense to you, find that topic in the didactic and let the didactic interpret the non-didactic. So you can actually find clearer uh, instructional material as elsewhere. All right, and that brings me to my next point, which is very similar, so I'm just going to let you fill in the blank. Interpret the obscure in light of the clear. This is very similar to the, the point we just made, except there are some didactic texts that are clearer than other didactic texts. There are some epistles that are easier to understand than others, so interpret the clear, the obscure from the clear. The next one... Interpret earlier revelation in light of later revelation. This principle is grounded in the concept of progressive revelation. It's the idea that God has revealed himself and his will in scripture progressively. So passages of scripture that were written later will often provide us more insight and more detail than the scripture that was written earlier. Okay? Um, for example, Christians believe, you and I believe, that God is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. However, the Old Testament saints did not believe in the triune God. They believed God is one, as referenced by the prayer in Deuteronomy, the Shema, right? God is one. Jews still today just view God as one. But we know from later portions of Scripture that, no, God isn't one. He's three in one, all right? So let later text bring light to earlier text. Okay, next point, and I, I promise you I'm moving quick and I'm wrapping up. This is one of my favorites. You are not the hero of the story. You are not the hero of the story. David killing Goliath is not a story that you can use to pump yourself up to slay your giants. You're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. Okay, you're not David. <laughs> Jesus is. Jesus is the one that will slay your giants. In fact, uh, I hope you don't find this offensive, but if you look in any story and you find the outcast, the rebellious one, the, the protagonist, not the, the best character, the worst, more often than not, that's you. Okay? You can find, you can find parallels to you in that, that story. All right? We don't look at... We don't look at the hero of the story and think that's us. We are not the hero. All right. Next point. Parables have their own rules for interpretation. They have their own rules, which I'm not going to go over any of them because we're out of time. But it will be in your... I explain them actually quite, quite well in this. Uh, so you definitely want to get this. Um, and then my final point today, and I'm going to close here. The biggest challenge in reading the Bible is not actually studying it. It is living it. The Pharisees knew scripture, but knowledge puffs us up 
if we stay there. We have to move from information to application to trans transformation. You know, when Jesus commissioned the disciples in Matthew 28, he actually didn't tell them to go and teach everyone how to read the Bible. I mean, I'm pretty proud of the series we're in, and I think it's of God, but you know what he really told the disciples to do? Go into all the world, share the good news, and teach them to obey all that I've said. That's really the end result. Obedience is the end goal that you and I should be looking for. Knowledge isn't the end goal. Revelation isn't the end goal. Conviction isn't the end goal. Obedience and transformation is the end goal. Amen. I think, um, I think I'm done. And we're still in this series next week, so I'll see what other kind of stuff I can rattle your cage with. Please stand with me. How many of you are doing the 30-day shred? Yeah, awesome. Good on you. I'm doing it too. Um, I like to let people know that it's a lot and it's difficult, but if you will just play it and get it in your spirit, your spirit is listening. But there are also some overachievers among us. Because on the Bible app that I see, I see who's done, done each day, and it really, they're really starting to tick me off. The Kimmels, Kim and Tim, every morning by 7 a.m., they're done. I feel like it's voodoo and witchcraft somehow. Miss Connie, always done. My wife, Carrie, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know if I trust that she's done. So many people are just like, they're on it, which is great. I'm not one of them. I'm doing it, but I'm a couple days behind. But anyway, for those that are with it, you can do more. Rather than just read through, I want to encourage you that as you're reading, keep a notebook next to you and write down the things, the questions that you may have, the things that spark your curiosity. And since apparently you have so much time on your hands, when you're done reading, go ahead and dive into those extra things because I, I really believe like getting it in your spirit is great. And if that's all that you can do, keep doing it, right? But but I'm really excited about for those little moments that God will just highlight text to you and you'll, you'll say things to yourself like, why is God okay with all these concubines? You know? And then you can go study it. Right? So write down the questions that you have. Actually, if you picked up this today, on the last page is a list of resources. So any Bible question that you have, you, I gave a website that you can go in and I trust this website. I haven't looked at all 600,000 of their answers, uh, but I trust this website. And you might can just do some study for yourself. Like how, how deep will the rabbit hole go? You know what I mean? So for those that are overachievers, God's hand is clearly on you. You are the beloved. Um, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Now, you guys are doing good. All right. Father, we just thank you. God, I thank you for my church family. They're just so fun and so life-giving and God, we just want to know you more. We want to know you through your word. 
God, we want to know you through our encounters with you, through your presence. We, we just believe in a God who is still very much involved in the lives of humanity today, a God who still heals, a God who still speaks to the population through, through prophets and through signs and wonders and through prayer time and through dreams and visions. So God, well, I just thank you. I thank you for our people, for this house who are hungry for you. God, I just thank you that those who thirst and hunger will be filled. In Jesus' name I pray, let the church say amen. Thank you for coming today. Take what you received in here and go out there. Give it to someone and be the church. We love you guys.